The, the lessons of the Second World War, for example, is one of the lessons, one of the most important lessons, is to have overwhelming preponderant force so that your enemy does not attempt to attack you. Well, we have forgotten that lesson. It's not that we're going to be fighting the last war as in, you know, Germany's going to invade Poland uh, and we're going to be on the same side as Russia. Uh, it won't be like that at all. But um, it's, the, it's the lessons of each war that you have to learn and the lesson of the last of the Second World War seems to be absolutely clear and we seem to have forgotten it. Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. I've posted some images on our Instagram account to illustrate these discussions, which are often violent and generally quite bloody. Our guest today is the best-selling military and political author, Professor Andrew Roberts. He's a doctor of philosophy from Cambridge, a visiting professor of war studies at King's College, amongst numerous academic honours. He's written 19 books translated into 23 languages. In 2012, he won the William Penn Prize, Previous winners include President Ulysses Grant and General George Marshall. The Sunday Times has said that his Churchill biography, Walking with Destiny, is the best single-volume life of Winston Churchill ever written, and there have been over a thousand of those. Welcome, Andrew Roberts, to Bloody Violent History. Thank you very much indeed. It's an honour to be on the show. Well, despite the lurid title of our podcast... Jamie, my co-host, and I believe that the study of history is critical for anyone who wants to understand the way we live now. Before we dive into the detail, a more general question. What to you is the importance of history and the study of history? Well, I'm reminded of... Uh... Winston Churchill, when he was crossing Westminster Hall on the day of the coronation, the present Queen's coronation, in June 1953, and a young American um, came up to him and asked him for some life advice. And Churchill said, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. And um, I think it's, uh, of course, much more important than that as well. But you can um, take that, I think, as the, as the basis point. It's the, uh, it's the sort of place where all the secrets are. Um, it's also, of course, just the most wonderful and lovely and fascinating thing in its own right. Uh, to be able to try to delve into the way that people's minds worked in the past... Um, which were very different, and the further back you go in the past, the more different they become, um, is in itself an intellectual exercise which um, gives pleasure all the time. But nonetheless, uh, it also does very much have a uh, practical aspect. I, I'm a, a complete supporter in Neil Ferguson's concept of applied history. Right. Well, when I first uh, conceived of this podcast with um, Jamie Jackson, we made an introduction to sort of tell people what we were going to do. And in it, we actually mentioned, uh, well, I mentioned this fact that Winston wrote the biography of his ancestor, Marlborough, the Duke of Marlborough. And in that process, he learned a lot about how to 
uh, deal with other nations, leaders of nations, and how to run coalitions. And that, to me, seemed to uh, 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 encapsulate the idea of the importance of history. Yes, um, that's very true, I think. I go into this uh, quite a lot in my uh, book, uh, Walking with Destiny, because uh, Eugen of Savoy was, in many ways, somebody who just naturally understood um, the Duke of Marlborough. They were like blood brothers. It was incredible how they could anticipate each other. You know, it was, well, it was rather like sort of lovers finishing each other's sentences kind of thing. They were that close. And so when, uh, in 1941, the Americans came into the war, Churchill had a template with how to deal with FDR. And it involved, of course, it involved realpolitik and, uh, and, the, uh, and the clashes of, uh, of political forces. But it also had this personal element as well. And he therefore knew what it took to be a, a good and close ally. Because he had to woo FDR, didn't he, really? He wasn't... They, they weren't immediately, um, FDR wasn't immediately trustful of Churchill. And neither was Marlborough of, Sago of Savoy. Um, you know, that it's, uh, it wasn't love at first sight at all. In fact, the first time that FDR met Churchill was uh, in 1919, uh, in one of the inns of court, where at a dinner, um, Churchill snubbed him effectively. And Roosevelt came away thinking he was a stinker. Uh, and uh, and so by the time they met the second time uh, on the USS Augusta at um, in Newfoundland, once uh, the Americans really did look as though they were going to be um, coming into the war in August 1941, it was uh, very much, as you say, a, a wooing process. And Churchill made two or three funny sort of um, sexual uh, metaphor gags about um, how no mistress has ever uh, studied the whims of her master more than I studied those of FDR. And there was another very good one. Once the Americans were in the war, four months later at uh, the time of Pearl Harbor, uh, a general came to him and said, oh, we must worry about the Americans doing X, Y, and Z. And Churchill said, um, oh, no, that was when... Uh, that was when we were wooing, you know, they're, they're, they're in the harem now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so he was very much on that, because uh, he had the same issues with the king as well, Winston, didn't he? That's right, very much, very important this to remember, I think, that there's no reason why they should have got on necessarily, the king and, and uh, Winston Churchill. Churchill had been a great supporter of um, the king's elder brother, King Edward VIII, at the time of the abdication crisis, whilst the king had been a great supporter, a staunch supporter of Neville Chamberlain and the policy of appeasement. So you, um, they might not have got on, but very quickly, and you, you see this very much from the uh, king's diaries that, um, that the queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to, to work on these diaries. And... Uh, um, and you see from them that very early on the King and Churchill get on until they become, in the King's words, friends. So going back to the lessons he learned from Marlborough, what was, what was his sort of take on it? That he realised there are people who might not naturally like him or he said bad things to before to, to, to woo them back. What was his process? Um, constantly, of course, to keep the, uh, the wider... Um, the wider aims in mind. In in uh, the case of uh, Marlborough, of course, it was defeating Louis the Fourteenth of France, and with uh, Churchill and FDR, it was defeating Hitler um, and the Japanese. So you, uh, so he he he, caught, he kept ensuring that you know that aim was uh, was 
first and foremost. He also um, was charming, immensely charming. He didn't much like um, uh, the cocktails that FDR mixed for him in the White House when he <laughs> went over there in December 1941 and didn't pretend that he did. Was it too much ice or something? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, he just didn't like cocktails terribly much. Um, uh, mixed drinks weren't for him, he, uh, unless, unless it's sort of soda in his, um, his whiskey. But he um, was able to deploy this extraordinary arsenal of charm. And, uh, of course, FDR had it in spades as well. You, um, in those days, didn't get to be president unless you were able to, uh, to charm huge audiences yes. and groups and, all, and uh, things like that. And, uh, and so when these two men actually um, came together and recognised that they needed to, uh, to be close allies, then um, the, the alchemy worked on both sides. Yes, and so this kind of leads to the idea of when, when you look at history, do you look at personalities or events? I mean, do you, do you ever find conflicts? Because you've written a number of books about people, uh, and then, you know, the history seems to, you know, flow around, uh, flow around that. Um, it entirely depends on the kind of history book you're writing. If you're writing a history of a, of a war, then you concentrate on the events and slip in the personalities. But if you're writing a biography, then all events have to be slipped into the uh, to the overall character you're writing about. And uh, the key thing, I think, in both of these things is to keep to chronology, to make sure that you're taking the reader along uh, and you don't force the reader to have information that he doesn't need at the time, uh, or, alternatively, that you, um, uh, you don't sort of um, fail to give the information that they need in order to, um, to understand what's happening. So I think that... Um, yes, so it's a delicate process. You don't want to lead them by the nose. But precisely. you want to give them as much as possible so they can understand the picture. Precisely. And also, um, you mustn't... Another, another difficult balancing act is you mustn't assume so much knowledge um, that, they, um, that they don't quite know what's going on. But equally, you mustn't um, talk down to them. Uh, you know, sometimes I've seen in history books <laughs> a, uh, a reference to the Austrian-born um, dictator of Germany, Adolf Hitler. And you think, look, if somebody's actually bought your book and is, is reading it, or even is flicking through it in a bookshop, and he doesn't know that Adolf Hitler was the German dictator, you know, born in Austria, yeah. he's probably not going to have bought it in no, the first place. probably needs to start with the Ladybird book and go from there. <laughs> um, well, before we get on to the next part of our talk, I... Um, when I was a young officer in the in the army, I um, you, most of the time uh, we weren't required to do much intellectual work. We were meant to, um, according to one of our colonels, do something dangerous once a day, which meant you know going hunting, jumping out of an aeroplane, but not sleeping with his wife. And uh, when I was in Cyprus with the UN, I had I'd been sent a note saying that I was to write. We all the young officers were to write an essay on the principles of warfare. And, of course, I sort of forgot about this until the SA crisis loomed. And I was, at that time, visiting my sister in Amman, who was with the VSO. And I went, the only person who had a, a decent place to have a party was the young American diplomat. So we all went to his house. And on my way through his house, I went through his bedroom, and I tripped over a, um, John Keegan's book, The Face of Battle, 
picked it up and uh, looked at the back page and thought, oh my God, this, this could totally save me. Nobody's ever going to have heard of this. So uh, I, I read it through. I did read also um, the reason why, I think. And then I banged out my essay and sent it up to the regiment. And uh, they sent a note back saying, Tom, we love your essay. We think it's going to win the army prize. We sent it up to division and you never guess who's, who's going to be the judge. John Keegan. And <laughs> 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 anyway, luckily, at some somewhere along the line, it, it got lost. So, um, did you not good. get the army prize? Did jo- John not? I, t- I promise, if if somebody had plagiarised my uh, one of my books, I'd be absolutely thrilled. He'd definitely get top prizes from me. <laughs> and I always thought I dodged a bullet there. For but maybe yes, maybe you're right. Do you have a book from when you were younger that you know sort of was on the shelf and you thought, my God, that's really kicked me in the direction I want to go with history? Um, well, actually, The Face of Battle is, is one of the... You, you couldn't have tripped over a better book uh, for what you were doing. He, uh, John, who I knew quite well um, and liked very much, was um, absolutely at the top of his game when he, he wrote that book. And the way in which um, he was able to equate the um, soldiers' personal experiences in those different areas, in uh, in the Somme and in uh, Waterloo and so on, was just a uh, just an absolute um, tour de force. So that I think would be one of my um, uh, formative books. Um, uh, the biography that um, Alfred Duff Cooper wrote of uh, Talleyrand was um, something that I read at Cambridge, and that had a tremendous effect on me. Um, it uh, it was literature as well as um, history, uh, biography in this case. Was he in Chamberlain's, um, he'd resigned from Chamberlain's he government? He resigned over war. Munich um, yes. for, as First Lord of the Admiralty. Um, and then he didn't have a very successful Second World War, actually. He became Minister of Minister for Information, a very bad and difficult job, and he didn't um, do it terribly well. And then he was uh, sent off to the Far East. Um, and uh, got back before the fall of Singapore, luckily for him. But it, um, it wasn't really because of his uh, politics that I was interested in that book, so much as his, um, his capacity for making a, an individual come alive. Not just Tanneron, but everybody around him as well. I've since actually changed my mind very much about, about Tanneron and lots of the other people in that book. Um, but I, um, I know that in terms of just literary capacity, um, Alfred Duff Cooper was a, uh, was a brilliant writer. Right. And have you read that book? I'm a great re-reader of books. I, you know, if I like a book, I read it again. As novels as well. Do you, do, have you read it again sort of more recently? I haven't. No, that's an idea, actually. I might, I might you know, take it on holiday and see whether or not... A, a, little, bit of me, a little bit of me would die if I found that I didn't enjoy it again it, the second time round. Or the, that if I found it, um, you know, golly. No, I'm not... Maybe I'd prefer to have the, the memory of it than, uh, than to um, revisit. Yes, it's a, it, it's a definite risk. Yeah. OK, well, on to your books. Leadership and Leaders, and the book, the current book is uh, Leadership in War, which I read and enjoyed very much, and the people that you chose to talk about, Napoleon, Nelson, Hitler, Winston Churchill, George Marshall, Eisenhower, Stalin, and Mrs. Thatcher vis-a-vis the Falklands War. Um, I have a sort of question about sense of destiny. Why are some men and women driven? with a sort of sense, are they driven with a sense of destiny? 
Some are, some, some aren't. I think um, the majority of the people that I chose for leadership in war were. Napoleon very clearly was. Um, he believed in his, uh, in his star uh, and spoke about destiny as a, um, a form of providence, uh, which is a little bit luck, um, but, but something more than that as well. There's a, almost a spiritual element to it. Um, Hitler believed in his own destiny as well. When the um, bomb plot of the 20th of July 1944 failed, um, he put it down to providence, you know, having uh, uh, essentially moved the bomb away from where he was standing to behind the other side of yeah. the heavy table. And a lot of people previously had tried to bump him off. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't the first attempt. Uh, precisely. No, no, no. It's extraordinary, really, given how many assassination attempts he uh, survived, that he got round to just shooting himself in the end. Mm. Um, Self-assassination. <laughs> very satisfactory. He had a, um, a very strong sense of his own destiny, therefore, um, and so did Churchill. Um, I, did, I, I subtitled my book Walking with Destiny, not just because, of course, he famously said of himself when he became Prime Minister, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for these hours and for these trials, but also because, if you look at his life, he, um, he, he genuinely had um, this, uh, this sense and um, I wouldn't say that Margaret Thatcher did necessarily, or, or, or President Eisenhower, or uh, George Marshall necessarily. But uh, but some do, some don't. I suppose is the uh, rather banal repl reply to your question. Uh, I've noticed in my limited readings of, of everything that sometimes when you get a combination of um, somebody with natural ability as a leader and also a patrician background that you can have a kind of coming together of a really quite exceptional leader. I mean, Julius Caesar is, is possibly an example, you know, when you compare him to Marius, but um, you definitely get the feel with Winston Churchill, not that we want to just talk about him, but that he was a patrician, but he wasn't the Duke of Marlborough, and he had this sort of sense of destiny about him, and that combination can be incredibly... Uh, effective or even incredibly dangerous. Well, yes, and, and, and actually you go back to the Duke of Marlborough, he didn't um, have that kind of background, of course. He was um, came from the squirearchy, whereas uh, Winston Churchill was the grandson of the Duke of Marlborough. Um, so uh, you also get it, I think, with JFK very much, um, a, uh, I mean, not an aristocrat or anything, but came from a, from a moneyed background with his father having been ambassador to London. Um, you see it with... Uh, there were lots of people who um, who are very fortunate and, and privileged, but it doesn't mean that they sit back. And in, in Caesar's case and Churchill's and uh, JFK's, um, they uh, they most certainly don't. Well, I, I meant that they they did the opposite of sitting back because they weren't the sort of top guy in their family, so they really had to prove themselves. And you know that you know, their genetic ability, whatever, their abilities on their own, plus this sort of patrician of, of feeling of, you know, wanting to run the, run the show. And you also get that with JFK, um, of course, because it was his elder brother who was the one that, um, that uh, the family, including his father Joe, were looking to to become president, and, uh, and he was killed in the war. Yes. So you're, you've written a number of books. You've written about uh, Lord Halifax, Napoleon, uh, Salisbury. Who tops the list for you? It's usually the person who I'm, I'm writing about at the time. I've, I've become most interested in, 
uh, in them. But uh, on this occasion at the moment, I'm still very much enthralled to Churchill. I find it tremendously difficult, I think, to, uh, to get over this, uh, this extraordinary personality. Um, partly because he was so funny. You know, the jokes are, are, are so plentiful. I managed to fit a couple of hundred Churchill jokes into my book, but um, that's nothing. You know, it's an absolute um, you torrent, know, bucket in the yeah. uh, thrown over the side of an ocean yes. um, that you can't go. Even in boring speeches like budget speeches, you know, there'll be something amusing. Um, he, uh, you can't go more than three or four pages without coming across of his writing or speeches or so on. Uh, without an aperçu or a a gag, you know. Yeah, it's hard to hate somebody who uh, who's funny. Um, that's right, and it's interesting, actually, funny enough, how how um, I mean, obviously, we all know that um, uh, intelligence and wit are intimately uh, bound up, but um, you can also see um, charm and and wit being. Uh, interacting, certainly they did with Napoleon. Um, one of the reasons that Napoleon is not Hitler, is not a proto-Hitler uh, in any way, is the um, way in which Napoleon would make fantastically funny remarks, whereas um, Hitler never told a joke in his life. No, he was the joke, unfortunately. Yes, but also there's that thing of wit and humour. I mean, we, the, the, the British, the English, you know, we, we tend to go down the humour side, whereas the wit is slightly more at at the expense of others, more of a French trait, perhaps? Uh, no, I don't think that's true with Napoleon, at least. He's, um, the, the, the gags uh, are um, sometimes even directed against himself, which is very unusual in a dictator and mm. totally unknown in, in um, someone like Hitler. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas, whereas Churchill's jokes, about 50% of them were directed against himself. Self-deprecating, yeah. yeah. It, it's a good technique. It, it, work, it works um, because one is assuming a certain degree of pomposity from a statesman. Um, it, uh, it works brilliantly when, um, uh, you, get, their own when, when you, when you get the opposite. Yes. Yeah. And so in your, the different books you've written and all the study that you've, you've done to undertake that great task... Um, have you noticed anything about the British, the, the sort of British character? Because, you know, we have stereotypes of different characters that, that you know, you'd like to talk about. Not really, no. I, I, uh, I ought to, I suppose, by now have some kind of overarching theme of national identity that I um, have, um, have found. But actually, it's, uh, it's a difficult one. You know, I, I keep thinking, I know a lot of people do, and, and in fact, at some stage in your life, you have to keep thinking about what we'd have done if we'd been invaded and how we would uh, have um, behaved if we'd been occupied by the Germans in the same way that the French and so many other people were. And um, I'm afraid I do see a lot of uh, people in this country in uh, 1940 collaborating. Um, I, one, one prays and hopes that there wouldn't have been so many that they'd have been able to have held down the nation, but there would have been a, uh, there always is a, a, a sort of fifth column of people who would be willing to um, to help the invader. Well, like, I suppose, Norway and the Quislings. No. Well, precisely. Yeah, yeah, there would have been, they would have been um, British Quislings. And um, it's a, uh, Sir Isaiah Berlin once told me that it's the most vicious game an Englishman can play is to try to identify uh, the kind of people who would have worked with the Nazis. But I'm afraid that we would have found people to have put the Zyklon B into the, uh, 
into the gas chambers in this country just as much as as um, happened in other countries. Although when you think about, um, you know, the mocking, even P.G. Woodhouse mocking the black shorts and all of that, I mean, we weren't taken to the same extent by the idea of these people stomping around. You know, we had Mosley, but I mean, most people in the country ridiculed it. Yes, because we have first-past-the-post politics in this country and not proportional representation, thank God, uh, it meant that the British Union of Fascists never got... A, um, never won a by-election and, uh, and Mosley never got into Parliament under his own um, fascist banner. Yes, and once these people winkle their way in and they get to the top, you can't get them out. Precisely. I mean, I don't think that they'd ever won, ever won a um, general election. But, um, and, I, and, and I'd like to maybe qualify something I said earlier. I mean, I'm, I don't think that there would have been as many uh, fascists willing to, to run the death camps in uh, this country, but you don't need many to do it. That's the point. It's not that we, we would have had a larger fraction uh, or a smaller fraction than anybody else, but actually you only need a handful of people to, um, to commit the kind of atrocity of the uh, Holocaust as, as, as we saw in, when it was taking place in Eastern Europe. Um, in your book, um, your recent book, Leadership in War, you talk about quite a lot of factors that go into uh, what it takes to be a leader. I mean, I, I, I went through, they're fairly well listed in the Napoleon section, about 20 different things. And uh, trying to sort of narrow it down to the bloody violent history element, uh, some of them are ruthlessness, decisiveness, nerve, compartmentalization, um, discipline, and calm of uh, being able to keep your nerves under control in tight situations. Um, of those, you know, there are a lot of factors. What, what, you know, what are the standout ones? Well, I think compartmentalisation is is a standout one actually. To be able to concentrate entirely on um, the job in hand, but also um, have the capacity to um, to be doing lots of other things at the same time, is uh, something that I know I don't have. I. I I can't uh, do that. Um, my wife tells me that's just because I'm male, and uh, and the, the, yes, exactly, and that we therefore aren't capable of, of doing two things at the same time. But um, Napoleon was was male, and he was even during the uh, um, the time that Moscow was burning down, he was able to write the rules of a girls' school that he wanted set up in Saint Denis. And as the opening salvo of the Battle of Borodino, um, as the Russians call it, Borodino. As we know it, uh, was starting, uh, he wrote the rules and regulations of the Comédie Française. And this is the most extraordinary capacity to, um, to be able to move armies, uh, fight battles, have the most uh, extraordinary things going on. Can you imagine the cannibals whistling around your ears? And yet to be able to um, sit down and concentrate on something else because you have five minutes before you need to yeah. um, give an order write a menu for, for a dinner that's happening in, in you know, a week's time or something. Well, there's one point where he actually writes to the um, prefect of Genoa telling him to stop taking his mistress to the opera. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and he does this in Russia, you know, which is 3,000 miles, sorry, <laughs> well over 1,000 miles away. Yes, extraordinary. Maybe it's a way of um, actually taking away some of the stress of situations. I mean, we think it's a sort of superhuman it sounds like a superhuman ability, but in fact, when things are extremely stressful, to be able to 
plant your mind into another problem that's not actually important um, can be a, a, a sort of meditative process. Yes, yes. I think that's possibly how it worked with Churchill. Churchill was able during the his time as First Lord of the Admiralty in uh, 1940, also to be working on the um, proofs of his History of the English-Speaking Peoples, the first volume of that. And I think that was probably a sort of displacement therapy kind of um, therapeutic way of of, um, of using time, yes. But I wouldn't say that that's the most important aspect of, of leadership, but I think it's one that does come up time and again. Margaret Thatcher also, of course, was able to, uh, to do that. And, um, and so were several of the other ones who, who crop up in this book. Yes, yeah, so that's the kind of, you have to have that to get anywhere, but actually to, to be a, a successful leader, you need some of these other, I mean, I'm thinking about the, the ruthlessness side of things, you know, Churchill taking out the, the French Navy or, or um, at Agincourt killing the prisoners, uh, you know, all these things, you went to the moment when you have to... Yes, that's right, and with Napoleon, um, actually two, two of them happen in the same year, 1799, uh, where Napoleon, um, of course, executes uh, well over a thousand um, Turkish, uh, or at least Ottoman, artillerymen after Jaffa. Um, and uh, in the same year, Nelson allowed the Neapolitan Bourbons to hang about 300 Neapolitan Jacobins. Um, in the, Napoleon's case, these uh, same artillerymen had given their parole, their promise, not to bear arms against the French Republic in the rest of the campaign, and they were caught six weeks later doing precisely that. Yes. And so under the rules of war, especially in the late 18th century, but also in the Middle East, you, you were pretty much, you know, that was your lot. He feared that if they caught people after that, who then again gave their parole, they would also believe that they would have to fight to the cherry, as it were. And, yeah. uh, and that would be an extremely dangerous, when you're wildly outnumbered, you're at the very end uh, of very, very long lines of communication. Um, that is a, a potentially utterly disastrous uh, message to send out. With Nelson, it's a bit more difficult, frankly, to, uh, to justify. He didn't need to uh, hand those uh, Jacobins over, but he was ideologically very, very opposed to um, uh, Jacobinism. Yes. I'm afraid you've got the probably one of your ex, your regiments going about to clip clock. Oh, how lovely. Yes, if you want <laughs> the to, drum if you, horse. If you want to see them. No, I, I think we're probably <laughs> untangling us from all these words no, exactly. would probably be a mistake. But, but watch out because it does mean that there's going to be the that noise. Does that yeah. matter to Will, no, the, will no. the listener hear that? No, okay. we can, we'll be all right. And anyway, it shows that we're in London. Yes, and, that's uh, right. You know, and, the, and the lifeguards are. I used to do by. the watering order in the morning, and it was one of the most entertaining things. Uh, my parents lived in Chelsea. And Water ordering. It's called the watering order. It's the one in the morning they, where all the horses that are not involved in any major activity are taken out for an hour's exercise around the streets of London. It's lovely. And, um, it's, and they lead, you know, the soldiers lead one horse and then mm. you go at the front. And on Christmas Day, I took the entire regiment, because I was a duty officer, to my parents' street, Astle Street, in, off uh, Kings Road. I love and it. I lined them along the road, because it was all silent, yeah. early in the morning. And then I got the trumpeter to blow, blow Ravalli. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody came out looking, oh my God, what's happening? How's and then, of course, funny. they brought out the mince pies. Yeah. And, yeah. Anyway, the next year, the colonel insisted on coming along as well. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, so... 
you, you wrote about in your, re, in your Leadership in War book um, about uh, 10 people. Is it 10? Nine. 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 Um, who didn't make the list? Oh, hundreds of them didn't make the list, of course. Who almost made the list? Um, again, any number of people. It was, I, I didn't choose the people uh, just on any kind of ordinary criterion at all. I did it entirely um, subjectively in terms of who I wanted to write about. Uh, or in this case, actually lecture about, because uh, these um, essays are based on a series of lectures that I delivered to the New York Historical Society. Mm -hmm. And um, and so if I felt that I wasn't going to have anything particularly useful or, or new to say about George Washington or Franklin Roosevelt or, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln, um, then I didn't lecture on them. So <laughs> I could have done any number of people. And I've had people come up to me and say, you know, Greek people saying, why didn't you do Pericles or Alexander the Great and so on. And uh, the answer is simply because um, I don't know enough about them to be able to put them between uh, hardcovers. Yes, I mean, they're all very good uh, examples. I, was, I thought Nelson was the only slight odd one out for me. Well, he wasn't a political leader, of course, which is one of the things. I mean, you, you could argue that neither was uh, George Marshall, but um, he's... Um, I, I rather suspect, by the way, that I think Nelson, had he survived Trafalgar by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, might have gone into politics in the way that Wellington did um, after Waterloo. Um, he, was a, he was an ultra-Tory, of course, and it would have been tragic for his uh, reputation. We wouldn't have a Nelson's column... Um, to him, probably had he gone into uh, into politics, so um, so he, uh, in terms just of his um, fame and glory, he, he he died at the right moment. He did. Yes. Well, in fact, that's a, a, an idea that um, intrigues me: that military leaders becoming successful political leaders, because you know Wellington is perhaps an example of a great military leader who wasn't very very successful in politics. No, and neither was um, Ulysses Grant. Mm. Um, he was he was actually a pretty uh, dreadful president. Um, he was mired in, not personally mired in corruption, but the people around him were mired in corruption. He got um, two terms, though, didn't he? Yeah, they all used to, oh. uh, and you had to be really bad not to um, in those days, rather than like today, actually. It's mm. a, uh, um, it's a, quite a, um, the assumption is that you get two terms. Yes. So going from a military leader to a... Do you think it's better that you, you're actually... I mean, Eisenhower is a very good example, I think, you give in your book, that he was... Would he have been a great military leader? Or was he really a politician, cleverly leading very good... Mil uh, very, very good military commanders who were under him. Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, of course, he 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 was a a great military leader in that Operation Torch was a huge success, and um, and D-Day was a huge success. And ultimately, you must give the supreme Allied commander the uh, the um, uh, credit for that, and also for adopting the broad front rather than the narrow thrust policy in um, Europe once they'd landed. Um, the the liberation of Paris and the fall of France and so on. You know these are um, these are things that Eisenhower plotted and planned. So I don't think you can take um, any of that away from him as a military leader. Where um, and and he was a successful president. I mean the 1950s, of course, America was was a uh, um, really a sort of supreme 
single superpower. Yeah, boomtown. Yeah, absolutely. My uh, my grandfather Arthur Harris is um, was a, a minor part in the D-Day thing, but um, no, not that minor. I mean, had they not had they not um, destroyed all the railway nodal points in Normandy in the uh, in the April and May of 1944, there's a very good chance that the Germans would have been able to have um, reinforced Normandy. I think I think Bomber Harris has to be given full credit for for uh, D-Day. Yes, okay, yes, I shouldn't do him down. I, um, I suppose he was still keen to keep hitting Germany, you know, in Germany. Um, but um, certainly the descriptions of when they called in Bomber Command to help them out with something uh, in Normandy, I think also the soldiers on both sides were quite astonished at the power of 600 bombers coming over and dropping, you know, it was unlike having an artillery. Um, it was a very... Um, dramatic effect and I remember when Gulf War One started thinking my goodness if he'd have had sort of um, guided missiles and bombs like that then he'd have been able to and would willingly have carried out uh, the kind of bombing that uh, people kept carping on about. Um, well you do you and you did get some um, precision bombing I mean the uh, the attack on the um, prisons at uh, Amiens Yes, um, the mosquito for, for, attack. For the, the mosquito attack was pretty uh, extraordinary, wasn't it? Uh, Operation Jericho. Um, it's it's not as though it never happened in the. In well, the, the dams. I mean, that was an extraordinary uh, business. Um, whether or not it had a, a huge effect, it was an incredible uh, bit of precision bombing. Well, and also extraordinary scientific engineering to be able to come up with a bouncing bomb is uh, is the kind of thing that you can do in wartime, but it would probably, the committee stage would have probably held it up and the financing, can you imagine, it would have probably taken 10 years. Yes, uh, he had a definite, uh, at the beginning of the war, when he spent a lot of time trying to improve the craft because he knew it was a terrible business, but at least if he could give them armour-plated seats or whatever it was, and there was a moment where the gun turret was um, didn't swivel far enough, and he went. He found an engineer not far from headquarters of Bomber Command, an engineering company, and he went along there. And they designed him an improved uh, gun uh, bracket, um, and he ordered ten thousand of them because he knew that if he ordered fifty, um, the ministry would make him pay for it. But with ten thousand, they'd have to pay for it. And in fact, he used that. That, that company throughout the war and others. Well, he was a very uh, talented interdepartmental warrior in, in the Whitehall sense as well. You know, needs, uh, you ju we were talking earlier about things that uh, military leaders need to be uh, and left off that list, I think, um, in my 20 list in leadership in war, is the idea that they have to be extremely good at the bureaucracy. And, uh, and learning how to fight the bureaucracy and, and defeat the bureaucracy. Look at uh, what Beaverbrook achieved as Minister of Aircraft Production. Um, the uh, the ability to sort of work out how government works and to work it to your advantage is uh, uh, is an important attribute in a war yeah. leader. And he also was quite good at going direct to Winston Churchill as well when he needed to. And you see that also, of course, with the um, with the Bletchley uh, people when uh, they're held up and they need resources, um, they physically go round four of them to Number Ten and knock on the door and speak to the um, principal private secretary. Yes, excellent. So, history. What can it tell us today? What? How can it inform us for the future? Uh, 
God, again, an enormous subject. Um, okay, well, maybe just narrow it down a bit. Um, is it better at predicting what won't happen? I think the big problem is, of course, that we all look at history uh, differently, and so we can all take uh, different messages from it, especially if the history isn't very good. Um, and so a, uh, a Russian will take um, the lessons of 1941 to 45 entirely differently from a Frenchman, from an Englishman, from an American. And, um, and so, you know, there is a um, continual danger that we look at history through to nationalistic a, a lens or that we um, downplay the sides of it that don't fit into our overall uh, political preconceptions, which happens a lot and which everybody must guard against as much as possible. And, um, and so when we mentioned earlier about applied history, about Neil Ferguson's idea of applied history, which I completely uh, believe in, and which Winston Churchill believed in, of course, as well, constantly referring to, to history, uh, in his speeches, especially his wartime speeches. I think it's also very important to make sure that it is the best possible history that we're referring to and not just some, um, some you know, old, um, discredited piece of history that is, uh, is not up to the latest methods. So how does that square with the, sort of, with the saying when people say that they're fighting the last war? Because, I mean, you know, that is kind of, well, that's the history. And the people end up fighting the last war rather than the current one. Um, I, no, I, I take issue with that. I think um, I think the concept of fighting the last war is a um, which I agree is a is a very strong one, and people do use it all the time. It's not that they are learning the um, the what happened in the last war and therefore wanting to uh, um, to do it all over again, so much as failing to um, learn the lessons of the last war. Um, and applying them properly. The, the lessons of the Second World War, for example, is one of the lessons, one of the most important lessons, is to have overwhelming preponderant force so that your enemy does not attempt to attack you. Well, we have forgotten that lesson. It's not that we're going to be fighting the last war as in, you know, Germany's going to invade Poland uh, and we're going to be on the same side as Russia. Uh, it won't be like that at all. But um, it's, the, it's the lessons of each war that you have to learn and the lesson of the last of the Second World War seems to be absolutely clear and we seem to have forgotten it. Yes. And, and at the moment we're stuck in our second lockdown, coronavirus. Um, do you have any historical projections from history of how we deal with plagues and what improvements <laughs> might, might lead in the future? You know, because the plague supposedly led to the middle classes, apparently. Well, there are lots of, there are lots of different plagues to choose from, of course, aren't yeah. there? Well, that um, in itself is, is a good thing, isn't it? Because, you know, we've survived lots of different plagues. Yes, but the, the uh, bubonic um, plague killed one third of the population of Europe. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily a precedent that we can pat ourselves on the back. Uh, for no, but again, it's it's very good lesson to people today when the when the mortality rate is whatever it is, point or whatever, that you know what the reality is. In those days, you know, every third person died. That's right, exactly. No, no, no. This is this is at the moment, God willing, at least not the anything going to be anything like one of the bad um, plagues in history. And actually, after that, if you go back to thirteen forty nine, um, you see the economy uh, went sort of great guns after that and was booming. And uh, um, obviously, wages uh, went up enormously. Um, 
But um, but no, I don't think that we can learn any lessons from the bubonic plague. We might be able to learn a few from the Spanish flu, um, which uh, also was much more serious than this one, certainly in terms of numbers dying so far, at least. And uh, what the happened Russian... in the Spanish flu? I mean, was it the movement of troops going everywhere that caused uh, the... partly that? Partly that, and also the the sheer weakness of the populations, because you'd had malnutrition, especially in Germany, as a result of our blockade, of course, and uh, and people were therefore much more prone to to die from it anyhow. Um, uh, plus, the sort of the, the World War was undoubtedly a super spreader um, event. But um, uh, if you look at the Russian flu, which also killed a million people... Was in, that at the same time? No, or? that was in um, the 18... Churchill was uh, 14, so it was the early 1890s. Um, about 1890 to 1891, I think it was. That, um, that also, as I say, killed a million people. And um, I, I, I think if, if we're looking for historical anal analogies, I think that's the one that will eventually, once this is all over, um, come down um, with. And what happened after that, apart from the revolution, or was that one of the things that fed into... No, 1891. No, 1891, no, no. there was no... no so what, was there any effect on, on Russia and the way it was governed or run? Or um, No, and it, it wasn't just Russia. I mean, it started in Russia. It, uh, it went, uh, went all over mm. um, Europe. And there's a wonderful line of Churchill's, and I can't remember it offhand, the entire one, but it's worth looking at in his speech in March 1944 to the Society of Royal Society of Physicians, uh, where he, um, he talks about how, the, um, how illness and disease needs to be fought like a, a war, like a battle. Um, it, uh, it, it needs to have uh, the whole of society you know, rising up to uh, fight what, what is essentially total war against disease. It's, a, it's quite a moving passage, actually. Well, I have to look it up. Um, right. Uh, what's your next book? My next book is a biography of King George III, which is going to be published in uh, October 2021 in England and November uh, 2021 in America. It's uh, going to try to argue that um, he was not the villain of the Declaration of Independence um, or the uh, sort of tyrant that you see in uh, Hamilton the musical. Um, but in fact, he was a, he was a Renaissance prince, uh, enlightened monarch, um, a hugely impressive figure, in fact. Long-living and reigning monarch. Long-reigning, 60 years, although the last 10, of course, he was mad. Mm. Um, and... Um, so there's um, there's a uh, a lot to be said about him. There's been one biography written of him in the last fifty years, and uh, so I think that there's a lot more to be said. And your American audience, because you have a, a quite a, a connection with America, you're going to enjoy explaining to them how George III was a good thing? I think so, yes. Um, that'll be fun. I'm going to uh, subtitle it Last King of America. <laughs> Good. Excellent. Um, so just a few little PSs we like to put in at the end of our talk before we end this uh, talk. Um, who would you say is your most sort of eccentric and outrageous leader who you have a sort of passing admiration for? 
Um, golly, I think it would probably be Mithridates the third of Pontus, uh, who used to poison himself, knowing that the that the um, Romans were going to try and poison him. He poisoned himself all the way through his life to the point that he had built up such antibodies that he could take enough poison to kill an elephant and it had no effect on him. I think that was rather magnificently uh, eccentric thing to do. In the end, they chopped his head off. Excellent. Well, that always works. <laughs> yes. It was bound to happen. <laughs> or at least, wasn't I think, no, in fact, he committed suicide and then his head was chopped off. I think. Uh, but um, but I think he's 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 pretty good when it comes to uh, unusual monarchs. Excellent. And a very good biography of him written back in the fifties by Alfred Cobb, and I do recommend that. Good. Okay, one last little one. If you could go to a battle in time, which would you like to attend from a from a from a hill where you could see what's going on? Um, could I be in a helicopter so I can actually go from, um, or a drone or something like that, so I can actually go, one of those little microlight helicopter things where yes. I can go from one bit to the next, thank you. Yeah. Um, let me say first off, and I always um, uh, point this out to former soldiers, that all we historians are always in awe of you. Um, and what Dr. Johnson said about everybody um, slightly despising themselves and never having worn the scarlet is completely true in my case. I, I'm, um, I live in constant uh, admiration for people who, who served in the uh, armed forces because I'm not sure that I'd be um, any good at it myself. And so I might well, in my microlite, be utterly sickened from beginning to, to end at, at, you know, people's heads being taken off by cannibals and things like that. And uh, I hope I'd be sitting there with my notebook being able to take it all down, but probably my stomach would be churning terribly. But it would have to be Waterloo. Um, I wrote a little book on Waterloo a few years ago. There are still questions about Waterloo. Why on earth did Ney attack with that massive cavalry attack um, at half past four in the afternoon, 16,000 cavalrymen not backed up by, um, uh, by horse artillery uh, mm. or indeed infantry. Um, why did... Were um, they not on a, res a reverse slope so he couldn't really see the damage? That no, no, done? by that stage they knew exactly right. where, um, where they were. Right. Um, and, uh, and also that doesn't explain why you don't back it up with, with horse artillery or even if there were reverse slopes. Yeah. You still need to, uh, to expand mm. and exploit the, um, the uh, overall yes. attack, like at Eilau, for example. Yes. Um, he wasn't in his prime either, was he? Nay, by then? Um, well, no, no, that's true. He'd, um, he had PTSD, effectively, from the Russian campaign. Um, but... Um, You'd be able to see on the uh, from the microlight, I think, you know exactly uh, what was going on, whether or not it's true that some small part of the cavalry uh, attacked and then the rest of it went forward without orders. Um, so I'd like to see how much of it was just by mistake. Yeah, that uh, tended to be a cavalry thing, didn't it? It was a sort of one shot and everyone got excited yes, and charged. Yeah, precisely. I'd like to see. I'd then like to go and hover over Hougoumont. Um, and see how close the French got to to entering. You know, they pushed into the gates at one point, maybe more than one point. I think that would all be very interesting. Yes, and at this point, I'm giving you thermal imaging goggles because the black powder would have meant you wouldn't have been able to see anything. Precisely. No, of course. No, but the whole thing, please take that entirely for granted. No, no, yeah. no. Um, and, uh, and actually, at this point, I wonder whether I could mention the work that Waterloo uncovered is doing, which is an extraordinary and wonderful 
um, organisation that um, that ex-servicemen, um, many of them who do have PTSD in fact, uh, are working as archaeologists all over the battlefield of Waterloo, but specifically on uh, at Hougoumont. And they have found out all sorts of things from where the bullet holes are and where the um, skeletons are and where the uh, actual the bullets themselves um, are. Um, and actually uh, grave sites and things like that. They found out all sorts of things about the defence of Hougoumont uh, that we wouldn't have known otherwise. And so, you know, well done, Waterloo Uncovered. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll put their details in the notes. I'll get them off you afterwards and put them in the notes along with Great. the details. Great. called Mark Evans. He's a giant and a genius. And, and he does it all on a total shoestring. You know, he's a great guy. Mm. Um, good. Well, so I've got that bit in, haven't I? Um, and... Uh, I'd like to hover over La Haye Saint and um, and look at the King's German Legion there and uh, how they held on till the last possible moment, whether or not um, the old and middle guard could possibly have, and indeed actually some t detachments I seem to remember of the young guard, could have punched through uh, had Wellington not organised the defence as well as it, he did at um, 6.30 to 7 o'clock in the evening. All sorts of questions about Waterloo that, uh, given the thermal <laughs> imaging uh, and the ability to sail through the uh, the black um, powder. And, uh, I, and Wellington, I mean, it, it, maybe it's a leadership thing. I mean, his, his ability to get around the battlefield was astonishing. Well, you have to remember, of course, that he was a great huntsman. And uh, he thought nothing of riding 30 miles a day in Ireland. And so um, the 11 miles or so that he, he covered at the Battle of Waterloo was, um, you know, was not uh, particularly was out, outrageous. And was Copenhagen like... was obviously a tremendously impressive course. And yes. uh, I mean, you also see him... He kicked him at the end of the battle, apparently. It, oh, did he? he? I didn't yes. know that. Um, I didn't know that. I'm sad to hear that. Um, well, no, I think it's a sort of, you know, the, the tough... We, we talked about it in our Cavalry Charge podcast, that the, these kind of horses, they were very, very tough. Okay, so kicking kicking your own horse it's, is not... It's a kind of, you know, you've, had, you've ridden me around the battlefield, just remember, whack, you know. So I think he would have, the Duke would have appreciated it. Oh, he kicked, sorry, the, the, the horse kicked the Duke. Oh, yes, yes, Oh, yes. I thought you meant he kicked the horse. No, 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 oh, not good. at all. Okay. No, no, oh, no, 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 that's fine. No, I, no, 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 I'm, no I'm, Copenhagen no, I'm kicked Wellington. I'm delighted by yes, that. Yes, absolutely, that's in absolutely your fine. place, yes, yeah, no, yeah. no. I don't, wouldn't tell that story <laughs> if it was the other way around. Good, quite right. Excellent, well... Um, Professor Roberts, thank you very much. It's such an interesting talk, and I will put all the details of your latest book, Leadership in War, in our show notes at the end of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've much enjoyed it. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.